This is the One Soldier Podcast, Episode 11, titled Civil War Submarine. In this episode, I'm joined by Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. During our chat, Rachel shares her story about solving the mystery of the disappearance of the Hunley submarine in Charleston Harbor during the height of the American Civil War. I caught up with Rachel from her home in North Carolina to talk about the Civil War and the first ever submarine. Well, hey, are you so are you ready for this now? I'm so ready. Let's talk about history. Okay. Well, <laughs> Rachel Lance, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really, really excited to have you on because you've written a book called In the Waves. I've been reading it. I'm not exactly done the book yet, but really enjoy it. Uh, I love what you've done in terms of combining your love and your passion for science with this really cool historical event. Yeah, thank you. I had a lot of fun with it because obviously I'm really passionate about science, but um, I'd always been passively interested in history just as a person reading a lot of nonfiction. This was kind of the first opportunity I had to bring those two together in my professional life and sort of combine them into one mega science project. Yeah, because your your job is to basically study the effects of blasts on people, right? That's one of the things that I really like studying, yes. In general, that's not always 100% of my day-to-day. Um, I sometimes look at other injury types as well. So right now I have a really big project looking at um, a specific way that people are injured and killed during a type of scuba diving. That's really common for the military as well. I get a little bit all over the board, but yeah, blast projects are one of my, my big passions. Yeah, cool. And so, so the book is just so the listeners know where we're coming from. It's about this American Civil War submarine, the first submarine to actually be successful in attacking a ship. And it disappeared about 140 years ago. And there's been this big mystery around it, right? Yes, it's called the H.L. Hunley. Uh, it was named after one of its inventors, Horace Hunley, and it was actually renamed in his memory after he died in it. But on February 17, 1864, a crew of eight men piloted this submarine out to the middle of the ocean outside of Charleston, South Carolina, and they used a torpedo on a spar. So during the Civil War, torpedoes were stationary. They weren't self-propelled like they are now. And they jammed it into the side of a Union ship, the USS Housatonic, and they sank the Housatonic. It was on the ocean floor in less than five minutes. So that is the first time that a submarine was successful in combat was the American Civil War. And we all know kind of they've become a little bit more popular since then. So proves that that idea worked. One of the fascinating things about the book is that this has been tried before, right? Like there was even a submarine in the revolution. I think it was called the turtle. Yes. Uh, and it, yeah. yeah, I guess it didn't really go too far. <laughs> no, there's some debate about that. Yeah. I tried to be a little bit more objective in the book. I think it can be a little bit more honest with this podcast, but I think the guy who was piloting it was just lying. Um <laughs> Basically, the turtle was American Revolution, and they were trying to do something similar. They were trying to sink one of the uh, British ships, and their goal was to like drive out and screw their little bomb into the side of the ship's hull. But uh, we do know that the bomb went off, so both the British and the Americans recorded that the blast occurred. It just didn't occur on the ship. It occurred like in a random place in the same body of water. Um, so personally, based on like the gas and Inside that little submarine, which was about, it was, it was very small, it was one person, and the amount of ventilation that he had, 
And the fact that it was also a pilot who wasn't supposed to be the one doing it, like the actual guy got sick and they just sort of brought in another dude at the last minute. Um, I think he kind of just puttered around for a little while and then dropped his charge and then went home. That's that's hilarious. Well, I guess it had to start somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Can't always start with victory on the first try. That's right. (laughs) You know what? I actually remember... uh, and I totally forgotten about this, but when I looked at the the book, I actually remember being a teenager and watching on, it was probably CNN, watching the Hunley being raised from Charleston Harbor. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And, and that, that was like a pretty big event. And it, That's it cool. like, yeah, like I remember there was like all these like reenactors there and like, it was sort of like almost like a festivity kind of atmosphere. But I mean, I guess it really goes to show how the civil war is so like, well, I don't even think we have a Canadian equivalent to it. Like, it's just, it's such a big event that still resonates with people, obviously. Yeah, it's really interesting because there have been other wars since then. Like, people talk about World War One way less than they talk about the Civil War. Canada was there for that. But, like, for some reason, even though it was more widespread, there's a higher level of public obsession about the Civil War. And I'm honestly not really sure why that is either. I think that it might be because people still try to be more contentious about why the war started um, as opposed to like World War II where we can all agree the Nazis were bad. Totally. Yeah. I think in Canada, like maybe like the equivalent would be like the war of 1812, but I don't even think it really comes close to that either. Oh, really? You don't have like war of 1812 bar fights? Well, no, no, not at all. Okay. (laughs) uh... That's bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have, uh, going back even further, we have the Seven Years' War. Uh, well, yeah, you guys in America call it the French and Indian War, but it's where the mm-hmm. British take over Quebec. And so they do a reenactment of this famous battle in Quebec every year. And, uh, but it's funny because it's Canada. Like the British, they do like the event over two days. And so the British, they win the battle on the first day. And then the next day, the French have to win the battle just to keep everybody happy. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> like we're just gonna compromise. Yeah, I actually really like that. Yeah, it's, um, kind, of, it's kind of funny that way. But but one of the, I don't know, there's a lot of like reasons why I think the Civil War is such a magnet for people. But I think a lot of it ties into your theme of technology because the war starts off as well. When we picture the Civil War, we think of like infantry trading volleys on the battlefield and cavalry and bayonet charges. And then by the end of the war, it's basically like a proto like World War One style combat where you've got like Gatling guns and uh, like underground tunnels and mines and, and submarines, of course. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think Civil War really marked a turning point in terms of the military and in terms of the way that technology affected warfare. And I think one of the biggest things that we see there was rail transit. So that's the first war where you see people really moving around and the ability to move troops as quickly, which obviously plays a huge factor in modern warfare and, and pretty much every combat since then. But you in the Civil War, I think there was also a lot more creativity because of the fact that the South was so outnumbered. Like if you look at the actual numbers, they had about a quarter of the fighting population and they didn't have a Navy to speak of. So what, what they did was they tried to get creative in response. And so I think that led to a lot of, the word innovation sounds really positive. The things that they were inventing were pretty horrifying, but um, you know, we still have a lot of them, like landmines and underwater mines. Yeah, like for sure. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you went there because that's actually kind of what I wanted to hit on next is that how, how did they build this thing? Because like you said, the South was outnumbered. The Union blockade was totally 
suffocating the economy, creating basically like shortages of everything. So it's, it's amazing to me how these guys were able to use their ingenuity to actually create this first ever submarine under those conditions. Like how, so how did they do this? Well, it kind of is, is a little bit homemade. So it's pretty impressive when you understand what they did and then you understand that they were willing to get into the thing that they built. The submarine Hunley was about 40 feet long and it's a pretty narrow cylinder. It's only about four feet in diameter. So sorry, English units. It was the 1860s. That's yeah. what they recorded everything in. But, um, so this thing is pretty tiny and the eight people inside are all really hunched over. And one of the things that's interesting is one of the questions is why didn't they just build it bigger? The reason they didn't just build it bigger was because it was made of recycled materials. So the, one of the engineers who was really in charge of building it, a man named James McClintock, he was also really known for being an engineer for steamships. And so he therefore had access to all of these steamship parts. The reason the Hunley is the diameter it is, is because it was actually hammered together out of the repurposed boiler from an old steamship. So they did a little bit of extra work to expand it a tiny bit vertically, so they had a little more headroom, but they weren't able to do something larger unless they were willing to build it from scratch. And at that time, given those resources, it's unlikely that they would have been able to. Yeah, that's, that's right. So, so this thing is Ford, Four feet, you said, in width? Yes, so four feet. So like a meter, a little less than a meter and a third. Yeah, okay. And then so how, like, <laughs> what about the height? Like, what would the height be on this thing? It's almost a perfect cylinder. So it's a little bit taller in height. I think it's different by about six inches. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so, so not a lot of room to, to squeeze in there. Right, no, they actually concluded, some of the researchers concluded that the guys would not have even been able to crank while they were still sitting to to oh that's probably important to mention this thing was powered by hand so one guy was in charge of piloting it and then the remaining seven were in charge of turning a hand crank that's on the propeller so that's also a reason why they tried to shove eight people inside this really tiny space instead of just having like the one guy go out there and do everything for everybody right um, so, so you got you got one like did the pilot have uh, like a steering wheel or like how did he he had a system of joysticks. Okay. Yeah, it actually looks pretty cool. So they're like attached to the floor and he could control the dive planes and the rudder with those. So but cool. yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, it, it, and you have to like wonder like what kind of person would have got into this thing? Because it, cause it had a bad history, right? Of, uh, you want to get into that? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I find was most fascinating about writing the history parts of this book is I think at least in America, people have this tendency to villainize every single human being in the South. And that's really easy. It's really easy to paint that picture. Uh, but my personal background, my grandfather came to America as a POW. He actually fought for Mussolini in World War II. Not very voluntarily, but I still grew up hearing all of these stories about like how fantastic America was because it's free and we don't have a fascist dictator telling us to go to war for reasons we don't believe in. Um, but so that kind of made me wonder a little bit more about the nuance behind these people getting this submarine. So with the Hunley, it sank at least twice before its final mission. 
the first time a couple of the guys managed to scramble out as it's sinking to the ocean floor. And so we have their eyewitness testimonies of what that's like to be shoved in this tiny metal tube and to have the water rushing in and to be just scrambling for one of the conning towers, which was the only way to get out. But um, eight men or three men did die. And so the second time it sank was actually because Horace Hudley decided to go for a joyride. He hadn't been inside his boat in a while. He wasn't considered well-practiced with the controls. And he ended up nosediving it straight into the ocean floor. So Horace Hunley died with his hand just pushing against that conning tower door, trying to shove his way out of his own submarine. Um, but unfortunately, in that instance, all eight of the crew asphyxiated inside the closed hull, sitting on the ocean floor. Wow. The, yeah. They so did how, how, did they, how did they recover that uh, ship then from the bottom? They had hard hat divers at that time, which is, if you kind of picture the movie Men of Honor, every time you see that like bronze dive helmet, that's a pretty old school design that's been around for a while. And so they had the ability, even in the mid 1800s, to send down divers who could float the ship back up with buoyancy. So they would basically just go up and tie things to it and then float it. Um, and so they were, both times at sink, they were able to recover it and clean it out, um, which was, of course, a job that was assigned to slaves because it was the South um, pre Civil War. And so the third crew, when they were recruited, that was one of the requirements, is anyone who's required or recruited for the third crew had to be honestly informed about these previous two thinkings. So from there, you kind of loop back to this question of like, why on earth would people still volunteer for this duty? Um, and so at least for me, as I was researching it and I was writing it, I was in no way trying to justify like the secession of the South or slavery or, or the start of the war in general, but I really wanted to look out what happened with these individual human beings to make them do this. And it turns out a lot of them were actually European. And so a lot of them weren't even from America. They came over and at least one of them was being paid to fight. Both the North and the South had a draft for the first time at the Civil War. And in the South, people could pay for a substitute to fight on their behalf. Um, so one of the crewmen on there, particular Johan Carlson, was from Denmark. And he'd come over, and it seems like he was just looking for a job. Um, but then the Hunley comes along, and that duty pays even more. And these are soldiers who are already starving. Like they're already subject to these blockades. They're already low on food. We know this for a fact. They've written letters and they've left behind recorded documentation. They're like, we have nothing but gruel. I haven't seen meat in a month. Um, you know, they're hungry and they're being shelled every night. So these union ships offshore are not just blocking the supply of food. They're also tossing in bombs every single day. So I think that there was probably a lot of just feeling of what what's the point in not taking the risk? Like it's either take the risk and try and like block, either take the risk and try and break the blockade or don't take the risk and probably get bombed tomorrow. Yeah, so it's like two, two sort of bad options and uh, but one pays better. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Wait, was Hunley the guy, so Hunley, the guy who made the submarine like, he, he wasn't an immigrant though. Like, was he like a, did he do this out of patriotism or like what, what was his like motivation? He didn't leave a ton of records specifically saying my name is Horace Hudley and this is precisely why I want to do that. 
Um, but what we do know is there's a combination of the fact that these are Southern plantation owners, as well as the fact that the Southern military didn't really have a Navy. So to motivate people to kind of contribute and be creative and help out, they offered letters of mark. So they offered um, temporary commissions to privateers. Uh, so basically what they were saying is we'll offer you a bounty. Anyone who brought their own vessel or built their own vessel and then sank a union ship was going to get paid for it. Um, and so there was a price value per union sailor that you killed as well as the monetary value of the ship. So money was a huge motivator for a lot of these people like Horace Hunley and the people he worked with to build their own boats and go out there and do this. Yeah, so sort of like some uh, like pirate action, but, but state sanctioned at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, the uh, I guess there's sort of like a Canadian connection to this because um, there's actually there's a book written about Canada and Civil War. The Halifax was apparently a major port for a lot of these blockade runners. To, really. To actually, if they got past the blockade, they'd go to Halifax because Canada was like, well, at least the government of Canada was very sympathetic to the South because it's Britain and it's like a good way to get back at America for all the the revolution, I guess you could say. So. Oh my gosh, that's so petty. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I knew that they were trying to get a lot of supplies in from both Britain and France, but it never occurred to me that they would use Halifax as a cross-Atlantic port, which makes total sense. Yeah, I don't know if they were picking up supplies or if it was like a way station, but there was, uh, you could find like Confederate flags in Halifax and like balls being held for these like captains and Confederate currency on the streets, so... Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a North American connection there. I, I was sort of thinking when I was reading this book that almost you can think of almost every war where the losing side and the South was definitely losing. Like the blockade was just so crippling. On the losing side, there's always this like sense of like uh, if we can get a miracle weapon, maybe we can turn this thing around. And like the most obvious thing that I'm thinking of here is like Germany in World War II with like their V2 rocket program, even their jet program. Even in the dying days of that war, there was this hope that, okay, if we can get these miracle weapons functional, then we can like maybe save, save this war. And so the submarine almost sort of fits into that bill of a miracle weapon. What, was there like a lot of skepticism though? Or like, were people like really enthusiastic about it? I don't know. I've seen records that go both ways. So officially these things were supposed to be secrets. Like they weren't supposed to be really public knowledge. It was supposed to be a bit of a secret weapon where they got to sneak up on the Union, but they would also hold public demonstrations. So um, they weren't very secret. We do know for sure that um, George Dixon, who was the pilot of the Hunley, the night of its famous attack, he left behind records that he was kind of getting harassed. So I guess like the people in, in Charleston were asking him all the time, like, dude, when are you gonna break this blockade? Like, Dixon, get your boat out there, break this blockade. So I do think that that shows that there are at least people who are really hopeful, like this thing will turn the tide, this thing will help us, save us. Um, we do know also like their ultimate goal was to just scare the union. They were like, this thing is new. Nobody's ever seen anything like this, at least not in combat. If we can accomplish this, we can sink them. We can prove to them that we can sneak up and sink them at any time and they won't even know. And they'll be so afraid they'll just go home. Now, I, th I think that that, like in retrospect, that is, like you said, it's a really hopeful attitude 
the idea that all of these soldiers and sailors who at this point are so used to gunfire, like they're, it's all the time. The Civil War was brutal. It was just constant shelling. And they're all going to be so scared that they simultaneously mutiny and take the entire Navy home. Like, it just doesn't seem as plausible as people were hoping for. But yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really human nature, like to say someone's going to save us. Yeah, totally. And it's not the first time that the South did this either, because they had the, uh, I think they were the first to make like an ironclad boat as well. Um, yeah. Of course, but the Union could counter that with, uh, with their own ironclad boats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of the least effective battles in history, I think. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but they did use a lot of black powder, um, which was really helpful for me when I was doing my scientific research, because I had to look at all the black powders. So, like, the Battle of the Ironclads, they left behind a bunch of records. Nice. From that. So, yeah. Well, let, let's get to the night of the attack then. So, okay. February 17, 1864, the Hunley submarine leaves its... I guess it's dock at Charleston Harbor and did it have like the Housatonic as its target or was it like just sort of searching for the closest ship? Like, can you tell us what happened? They knew exactly where they were going. Okay. So February 17th, 1864, the civil war has been raging for almost exactly three years at this point, but because of the brutality of this war and the scale and the fact that you have a draft with, you know, 85% of the people of the men of combat age are participating. It's unusually brutal. And so February 17th is when they finally decide it's the night. And the reason they pick this is because the whole winter has been just unexpectedly cold and stormy. So for this submarine, they didn't want to approach submerged because everybody knows about these other two times that it has sunk. They've been ordered to stay on the surface. And so they kind of have like a little bit of a compromise going. They've got the conning power sticking up on the first few inches of the boat sticking up. So they don't look like a normal boat, but they've got the added safety of knowing they can at any point open a hatch and be back out in the air. They take their submarine and they leave this place called Breach Inlet, which is like just outside Charleston Harbor, but they picked it because it has this crazy high current. So everything kind of dumps out of this inlet all at once when the tide goes out. And their plan, because they have to crank the submarine, is to just ride that ocean as far as they can, which makes a lot of sense, right? The Housatonic is about four miles offshore. And so, they picked this one on purpose because number one, perhaps most importantly, it was the closest. Mm -hmm. um, again, hand-crank submarines. So they're going for the closest ship possible in the blockade. The other reason is that some of the other vessels have dropped like chains and nets in the water. Like I said, these submarines were supposed to be secret, but they weren't. And so the Union ships kind of know they don't know exactly what they are, but they know something along these lines has been developed. And so these chains and nets are their way of protecting. For whatever reason, Housatonic doesn't have any. So it's not only closest, it's on. Okay. So the crew of the Hunley, on their way out of Reach Inlet, they've got this torpedo. Again, this is a stationary bomb. It's about the size of a beer keg. And it's on a spar. And so their spar is, I'll put this in metric, it's about five meters long, but um, <laughs> it's just attached to the bow of the boat. It's hard to convert on the fly, but that one I've got. <laughs> so it's attached to the bow of their boat. So as they're cranking out, they, 
we think they have this thing like propped up so it's in the air just to make it easier to crank. And then as they get closer, they're ready to attack. Someone inside the boat lowers that arm down. So now the spar is on a downward angle and this torpedo has a pressure trigger on the end of it. Their goal is to take this submarine, crank it as quickly as they can, and jab that pressure trigger right underneath the bottom of the belly of the Housatonic. Now, that actually becomes really important, especially if you're talking about blast science, because the deeper in the water your charge is, uh, to a certain degree, but especially when you're that close to the surface, the deeper in the water, the more damage you're going to do to the enemy ship. So they've done this on purpose. They want this thing beneath the Housatonic. But why that becomes important is because it also creates the scenario where they're getting most of the blast as well. You can't just isolate it. You can't just say we're only going to hit the Housatonic. You're part of this equation too. So they managed to do that. They're spotted as they're approaching the Housatonic. The Housatonic crew is firing at them. They're up on horse blocks. They've got their rifles out. They can't train the cannons down like the railings of the ship are too high. So when the crew realizes that, they all kind of abandon their stations and the captain lets them go. He's like, there's no point anyway. Run for it. They all run for the bow of their boat because this, this Hunley thing is heading for their stern. But the bomb goes off. Now, what you kind of have to imagine is bombs underwater are, they can, the sound from that can propagate forever. I like to compare it to whale noises, like whale noises, whale songs go forever. But if you're on the surface, you aren't hearing very much. That interface really reflects everything back down. Not a lot gets transmitted in the air. So these guys on board the ship, they see this big plume. They see the stern of their boat being blown to pieces. They see these planks of wood and everything go flying everywhere. But there's not that much of a sound effect. Some of the guys inside said they knew that the ship had been disabled because they felt it shake. And then it just like the propeller or the propeller kept spinning. But they didn't hear anything. And they felt the water coming up. And they were like, oh, time to get on, on deck. So... That's kind of what happened from the perspective of the crew of the Housatonic. They scramble into the rigging. Thankfully, they're in really shallow water. So even when their boat hits the bottom, which happens in less than five minutes, they're able to just cling to the rigging and the masts and wait up there for rescue because this is February. The water, even though it's South Carolina, is still cold enough to cause some serious hypothermia. Um, and they thankfully get rescued by a different ship in the blockade within about 45 minutes. Yeah, so so they actually saw this thing coming towards them. That that must have been like a surreal sight for the sailors on this ship to see the first ever submarine coming to get them. Absolutely. I think that must have been crazy. And the Union Navy held a board of inquiry afterwards. So afterwards, they kind of collected everyone together and they made them testify one at a time. My favorite part about that is that there was an officer on the Housatonic who clearly didn't think the threat was real because he was like, our, everyone else, all the enlisted guys are like, no, we told him and he said it was a log and he blew us off. Um, and during the board of inquiry, he's just lying. He's like, no, I sounded the alarm right away. <laughs> it was an immediate response. And I'm like, uh, they kind of call him out on it, but not fully, but it's the, the testimonies are pretty clear that everyone else agreed that he hadn't believed what was happening and he'd caused some delay in the response yeah which sort of like you can almost like sympathize with him because like it sounds crazy like 
It does sound crazy. It does. I would probably have thought it was a log. So, well, so the ship goes down, and the submarine is never seen from again. And that's sort of this mystery develops, and that's really where like your work comes into this because you right. have, well, you spent a lot of time and energy solving the mystery of what happened. Some would say too much time and energy. <laughs> um, right. So that's kind of where I come in is they found the submarine in 1995. Obviously, I'm not part of that at all. I can't take any credit. I was up in Michigan being a kid. But um, uh, they raise it. And then in 2000, they start conserving this thing. And it's still in South Carolina. So that's where it's on display. But everyone expects to have a solution to what happened become immediately apparent as they conserve it. But what's interesting is the more that they learn about this thing in modern times, the more nobody can figure out why it disappeared in 1864. So one of the first things that they determine is that this, the blast from its own torpedo didn't sink it. So they determine almost immediately based on looking at the way that the sediment built up inside the boat and looking at the structure of the ship that the blast didn't damage the hull. And so that's really important because there goes theory number one. Um, and then the second thing that was really interesting and kind of got my attention at a later date was that the crew was inside they didn't have any signs of skeletal trauma. Obviously, all the soft tissue is gone. It's been 150 years. But they weren't trying to escape. So every single man was still at his battle station. And there were other things that they could have done, too. Like, they had build pumps, but they weren't set to pump any water out. The rear conning tower wasn't even unlocked. So they weren't even trying to unlock the rear conning tower. They had weights lining the whole bottom of the keel that were all attached to bolts inside the boat. You could unscrew these bolts and nobody tried to do it. So they basically looked like they just fell over. For me, as someone who was in graduate school at the time and was researching blast and ballistic trauma and was really interested specifically in underwater explosion, that kind of started setting off alarm bells. Um, because a lot of those things are hallmarks of blast trauma. So most people really kind of misunderstand what that looks like because Hollywood lies to you. Um, so you kind of have to ignore Sylvester Stallone. Um, if you see someone who's <laughs> mysteriously fallen over with no explanation, maybe there was a Civil War explosion. But um, no, that's, that's that part's not true. But, um, <laughs> the rest is true. But yeah, so that's sort of where I came into it. And that eventually turned into a book because as a scientist, I never really planned to write one. But people kept making me tell the story over and over again. Um, I could be at parties and I would try and ask them about like their kids' recent projects or literally like anything to change the topic. And everyone kept moving back around to the Hunley. Um, well, it goes back to like the fascination that people still have with this uh, historical event. Right. So I think people are his, uh, fascinated with the Civil War, and I think people also love a good explosion. Like, I, um, <laughs> who doesn't, right? So that's what ended up happening. Um, for part of my PhD in biomedical engineering, I, I ended up doing these series of blast trials with live black powder charges. And so I built a scale model of the Hunley, um, a little over three meters or two meters long. And um, yeah, that was the largest size that would fit inside my car. Is that what's uh, behind your chair right now? 
Yes, that is what's behind my chair right now. Um, it just lives in the library now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is my Skype environment <laughs> for the quarantine pandemic. But, um, yeah, so I set that off and I found a tobacco farmer in North Carolina where luckily in North Carolina, you can do pretty much anything as long as you're on private land. Um, and so we set off black powder charges and did some science and took some measurements and um, assessed my theory of whether or not this blast was responsible for the deaths of the crew and the disappearance in 1864. And your and the, the science says that, yes, indeed, it was the the blast that killed these, like the, could you say like the shockwave from the blast? Like, is that what killed them or? Ooh, I'm going to nitpick you for a second. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Shockwave has like some very specific requirements. So to qualify as a shockwave, it has to go from like zero to maximum pressure in absolutely zero seconds. The black powder doesn't typically do that. It typically does it in like a few thousandths of a second, which for most people are like close enough, Rachel, stop talking. But in terms of, you know, being actual like blast physics, you have to differentiate. So, um, but I did conclude that the blast pressure was responsible for the deaths of the crew, even though they're inside the boat. Yeah, so... Uh, and you, you got to correct me here because I'm not a scientist, but oh, uh, that's okay. <laughs> is it sort of like the effect of the, like the blast is almost like bouncing around in the submarine or, or is, does it like just go through it and like mess up your insides and, and kill you that way? Oh, both. Oh, <laughs> both. So the first thing that you hit on is really important to this particular problem. I think everyone has been in a small room with an echo before, and they know that when you have a situation where um, sounds and pressure waves can bounce, they add together. And so that was one of the factors with the case of the Hunley is they're inside this tube. If it had been like an open air hull, it would have been less effective as a submarine but they would have been exposed to less of a blast scenario. The second one you hit on is kind of just like how blast trauma occurs more in general. So the easiest thing for blast to injure is actually the lungs, which is again, really ties in with the Hunley. There's no soft tissue left. Their lungs have been underwater for 150 years. So we can't ever really know for sure unless we want to build a scale, like a two-scale model of the Hunley and get eight volunteers, um, which I'm not going to do. But um, <laughs> Yeah, so the, the issue is that when it impacts the lungs, it really wants to slow down. Anytime you have a traveling wave that hits air, air slows everything down. And so what happens with blast trauma, and this is also true with like modern day blast trauma, of course, is that you end up getting bleeding into the lungs. And so now those lungs are traumatized, they're full of blood. Um, there are a couple other effects that'll happen as well, but that is the easiest way for someone to die from an explosion. Yeah, it, it must, I was just thinking, that must have been pretty, uh, I don't know what the word is, like creepy or surreal, like just to see these guys at their post and know that like, it's just like a suspended moment in time. Yeah, I think it must've been incredibly creepy. I don't know what I would give to have like a video camera footage of that exact moment. Um, one of the things that's cool 
to me at least, is that after the Civil War, there was a big industry for salvage divers. So immediately they've got salvage divers who are out there looking for scrap metal. They have a whole bunch of ships that have been sunk in this area. So they're trying to just recover like propellers and whatever metal chunks and bits they can get to sell. Some of the salvage divers who were diving in Charleston said they found Hunley. They said she was upside down because her propeller was in the air. Now that's interesting because she was found right side up but that's how she would have looked because that propeller was positioned way higher than like on a normal boat. So their description was right, even if their conclusions was wrong. And then other divers in the same area said they found her as well. And they reported back that all of her men were seated at their stations. So this thing has little windows in it. They're very tiny, but some, I think someone was looking in them in the 1880s, wow. 1870s, 1880s, and they saw these remains still seated in their station. Because yeah. why else would you report that? That's like a ridiculous thing to report. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. that's something, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, if the spar had been like maybe a little bit longer, if the if the explosive charge had been like at a different angle or depth, could they have gotten away with, with this attack and survive? Yeah. See, that's the thing that's crazy is there are so many variables. If they had just changed one, they probably would have been okay. And I think that's a big part of why we don't really see this scenario other times. Um, because if they'd had a longer spar or if they'd had it higher in the water, then they probably, or even if their submarine had been further out of the water, or if it had been made out of a different material, they probably would have been okay. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is the next time you really see widespread submarine combat, or really any submarine combat to know is World War I, which is of course when Canada got their submarines. And so, <laughs> yeah. And then- um, You got that, that Canadian reference next- in there. I got I got to get at least one in there. <laughs> so, yeah, they at that point, they've already engineered these things to withstand much more pressure. They were like, "Okay, honey, good idea, but we need to make it a little thicker. We need to make it able to go a little deeper in the water." So, they build these out of different materials and much more robust to make them go deeper in the water, and that also protects against blast. So that's another one of the things that they could have done. There's so many things they could have done to really protect themselves a little bit better. It, it makes you wonder if that, uh, if that spar had been a little bit longer or if these, like one of these variables had been changed, like who knows that could have affected the outcome of the war in some way or maybe prolonged it or who knows what. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's like a great question. Um, I, I listened to your hypothetical Canadian Civil War episode. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. And so like you could you could do the same thing as um, like, what if the spar had been longer? Because one of their explosives experts at that time told them, he was like, guys, make a longer spar. And they didn't listen. What if they'd listened and they made a longer spar and they could have sent the Hunley out on another mission? Like, could it have turned the tide yeah, of the war? I mean, like the... When the Hunley goes down, the Union, they didn't know that it went down either, right? As, or did they? Like, I'm assuming that they sort of didn't know that the sub went down. Like, for all they know, it's still lurking out there. Well, the Union wasn't totally sure. They, they didn't really know exactly what would have happened. We know that nobody really saw it again. Um, and they reported that it went down before the Confederacy reported that it went down. So actually, 
the next day, like a bunch of people were falsely reporting that they had come back safely, which obviously is not true because we have their skeletons. Right. But um, <laughs> yeah, so there were a lot of false reports the next day and the next few days in Charleston that the submarine had not only been successful, but they'd come home safely. And then eventually the realization started dawning on the population that that wasn't true and nobody really knew what happened. Um, so from there, that's where it developed into a bit of a mystery. Okay. Well, you know what, Rachel, we're almost at that time. It's gone by really quickly, at least on my end. A any other books planned for the future? Because you oh, hit a home yeah. run with your first one. I Thank you. Um, I'm going to try and not release the second one during a global pandemic. That's my plan A. Um, I am working on a second one. There will be more military history mixed with science. I really enjoyed doing that. But the book deal isn't finalized yet, so I'm going to have to leave that part in suspense. There will be Canadians, though. I've already, uh, there will be Canadians. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, I'm going to wish you uh, financial and uh, literary success with, with whatever comes next. The book is called In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. It's tearing it up on Amazon. I saw you have lots of reviews on there. Uh, looks like it's doing really well. So good luck with it and good luck with the next one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. And that concludes my interview with Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. I'm going to post a link to her book on the website, www.onesoldierpodcast.com. If you liked the episode, then please take a minute to like and share it on your social media, or better yet, and I always say this, go old school and tell a friend or a family member about the podcast directly. Hey, you can also help me out by leaving a review on Apple iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. If during this pandemic you find that you need some more reading material to keep you entertained, you can of course check out my books, One Soldier or The Ponds of War, both available on Amazon or if you can get into a bookstore, you can get it from there as well. That's it for this episode, which I'm going to dedicate to those men entombed within the Hunley submarine at the bottom of Charleston Harbor. Out.